I'm old. Don't shoot me. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He was a fiery and passionate supporter of the rights of the states and the institution of slavery. He was also violent, bigoted, a drunkard, and a U.S. senator from Texas on the eve of the Civil War. This week, we look at Texas fire eater Louis T. Wigfall. But first, what's your favorite Texas folk song? Well, my favorite one is the song The Streets of Laredo, which is... I see by your outfit that you are a cowboy. Made most famous by uh, Marty Robbins, Johnny Cash. Uh, the, the lyric, uh, bang the drum slowly, uh, play the fife lowly, is famously also used in a great tearjerker baseball movie starring Robert De Niro. All right. Well, I am going to say San Antonio Rose. Uh, Bob Wills is probably the most well-known recording, but uh, pretty much everybody under the sun has made a recording of it. Great song. That's the feature of a folk song, is everybody makes recordings of every folk song. Right. Well, um, I'm going to have to say my favorite uh, Texas folk song is, uh, if you're going to play in Texas, you got to have a fiddle in the band. That's not a folk song. That's Uh, not by a band from Texas either. (laughs) Yeah, it's Charlotte Daniels. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say Yellow Rose of Texas. Yeah. We've talked about the history of that song before, and it's dubious ties to the uh, actual history of the Texas Revolution, but uh, I'm going to go with that, especially the version that I know best, which was sung by Willie Nelson. It's an undeniable connection to Texas's culture. Yes. So go back and listen to episode 96. In the past, we've talked about numerous Texas political figures. For every great leader like Sam Houston, Ann Richards, Oveta Culp Hobby, or Stephen F. Austin, there are others with not-so-sterling reputations. Mirabeau Lamar, James Burnett, Papio Daniel, and Bill Clemens all had their failures and infamies. However, few of Texas' bad politicians have been as disturbingly bad as the esteemed junior senator from the Lone Star State on the eve of the Civil War, Louis T. Wigfall. Louis Trezevant Wigfall, Trezevant is a great middle name, by the way, um, was born on a plantation near Edgefield, South Carolina in 1816 to Levi Durant and Eliza Thompson Wigfall. His father died in 1818, and he was a successful Charleston merchant before moving to Edgefield to open a plantation. His mother died when Louis was 13. Now, Wigfall had an older brother named Hamden who was killed in a duel, and he had another one, Arthur, who survived and became a bishop in the Episcopal Church. Lewis himself was raised by a guardian, and he was tutored until 1834, and then he was sent to Rice Creek Spring School, which was a military academy near Columbia, South Carolina. This was a school for the children of the planter elite, so he lived an elite life, an elite upbringing, even though he was an orphan. He attended the University of Virginia for a year, and a perceived insult by another student prompted the first of many dueling challenges that he'd make, but this affair was resolved peaceably. His drinking, which had already started to become a problem, led to him leaving the university. In 1836, he entered South Carolina College, now the University of South Carolina, to complete his studies. His attendance was erratic. He developed an interest in the law, participated in debating clubs, and wrote epistles on student rights. 
Most of his time, however, was spent at off-campus taverns rather than at his studies. He quickly earned a reputation, which he came by honestly and never lost, for being an inveterate drunkard. He abandoned academics altogether for three months to fight in the Second Seminole War in Florida, achieving the rank of Lieutenant of Volunteers. Despite these distractions, he managed to graduate in 1837. In 1839, Wigfall returned to Edgefield and took over his brother's law practice. He squandered his inheritance on drink and gambling, and like any southern gentleman, he accumulated debts. He borrowed liberally from friends to maintain his freewheeling lifestyle. Mere office business, as an upcountry lawyer, did not suit his temperament and sense of purpose, nor proved to be as profitable as he had hoped. It was politics that called out to him. In the South Carolina gubernatorial election of 1840, Wigfall actively supported the candidacy of John Peter Richardson over the more radical James Henry Hammond, which led to public exchanges of arguments and insults, which led to public exchanges of arguments and insults with Hammond's supporters. In a five-month period, Wigfall managed to get into a fistfight, two duels, three near deaths, and was charged but not indicted for killing a man. Interestingly enough, Richardson himself was a unionist, but he still was a supporter of states' rights, while Hammond was even more radical, being a key supporter of the concept of nullification. Hammond also remained friendly with Wigfall, even though the younger man was mixing it up with his supporters. And go read the Wikipedia article on James Henry Hammond, and it'll curl your toes as to just how great a character this guy was. And I say that, and that great means awful human being. <laughs> Proving that politics make for strange bedfellows and even stranger enemies, Wigfall found himself in a blood feud with another future fire eater, Hammond supporter Preston Brooks. Despite their both being passionate supporters of Southern rights and slavery, and both being notorious drunkards, they positively hated each other's guts. Insults turned into fisticuffs, followed by challenges. Friends, including Hammond, intervened, but Wigfall refused to let the situation cool down. Brooks accused Wigfall of chickening out from a duel. Wigfall published a vitriolic response in a local newspaper. Brooks's aged father decided to horn in on the act and wrote his own scurrilous public rebuttal. Wigfall immediately challenged the father, who responded, I'm old and feeble. If there's an excuse to get out of in a duel, um, I'd probably take it, too. <laughs> I'm old! Don't shoot me! At this point, pursuant to the rigorous, detailed requirements of the Code Duello, Wigfall posted a public notice at the Edgefield County Courthouse of his opinion of Brooks's father as a, quote, no-good, cowardly pissant. He stood guard over his placard with a drawn pistol. Two relatives of the Brooks family objected to the placard. Accounts vary as to what exactly happened, but the general upshot is that someone tried to tear down the sign and Wigfall shot Thomas Bird dead, possibly after Bird fired at him, possibly not. Wigfall dueled with the survivor after that with no result. A week later, however, he finally had his showdown with Preston Brooks on an island in the Savannah River near Augusta, Georgia. Both men seriously wounded each other. Wigfall's shot shattered Brooks's hip, and as a result, Brooks walked with a cane for the rest of his life. Now, later, when Brooks was a United States representative, he used the cane when he famously decided to chastise Senator Charles Sumner for an insult on Southern honor. Brooks attacked him without warning on the floor of the Senate and nearly killed Sumner before all the senators. He was hailed throughout the South 
as a champion of the cause of Southern honor. Now, Brooks died in 1857, four years before seeing some of the fruits of his actions. After the fight, Wigfall tried somewhat to reform. He cut down on the drinking, and it was his last duel, though that reputation also followed him his entire life. He later claimed the co-duello was an important factor, was an important, quote, factor in the improvement of both the morals and manners of the community. In 1841, Wigfall married his second cousin, Charlotte Maria Cross, daughter of the prominent Charlestown lawyer and former South Carolina state controller, Colonel George Warren Cross. They had two children, Francis Halsey and Louise, as well as another son who died in infancy. Wigfall became an aide on Governor Richardson's staff, but was never completely satisfied with the outcome of the Brooks Affair, which destroyed his law practice. He was elected delegate to the South Carolina Democratic Convention in 1844, but his violent temperament and behind-the-scenes meddling had already doomed his youthful political ambitions. He piled up medical bills because of his son's illness. Sheriff auctions followed, swallowing up his Edgefield estate. Historian Adam Goodman wrote in his book, 1861, Civil War Awakening, quote, By the age of 25, Louis T. Wigfall had managed to squander his considerable inheritance, settle three affairs of honor on the dueling ground, fight in a ruthless military campaign against the Seminoles, consume a small lake full of bourbon, win an enviable reputation in whorehouses throughout the South, and get hauled before a judge on charges of murder. Three years after that, he took the next logical step and went into Texas politics. Boom. Boom. His cousin James <laughs> Hamilton Jr., a former governor of South Carolina, arranged for him in his fresh start at a Nacogdoches law firm. Gone to Texas. Yep. To reinvent himself. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't do very much. So Wigfall arrived in Texas, and he took up his new job at William B. Ockeltree's law practice in Nacogdoches. And he later moved to Marshall further north. He quickly dove back into politics, serving in the Texas House of Representatives from 1849 to 1850 and in the Texas Senate from 1857 to 1860. He became a staunch political opponent of Sam Houston. When Houston ran for governor in 1857, Wigfall followed him on the campaign trail, attacking his congressional record at each of Houston's stops. And he accused Houston of being a traitor to the South. Now, remember, Houston opposed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which would, ex which would have extended slavery into the Nebraska and Kansas territories. So he was not very popular at the time with a lot of the pro-slavery uh, Southerners. Now, he claimed that Houston had ambitions for a presidential nomination, and he had tried to court the support of Northern abolitionists. Houston responded in kind by saying, quote, I should think more of the fellow than I do if it were not that I regard him as a little demented from hard cider or from the troubles of a bad conscience. That's a burn. 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 <laughs> Houston lost the election, though, to Harden Reynolds, but in 1859 he defeated Reynolds in a rematch. Wigfall had moved on to other things, though. The Texas legislature elected Wigfall to the United States Senate in 1859 as a Democrat to the 36th United States Congress to fill the vacancy caused by the death of James Pinckney Henderson. Matthias Ward was appointed to the Senate following Henderson's death and served from September 27, 1858, until Wigfall was elected and sworn in on December 5, 1859. Old Sam Houston was quoted as saying, quote, Thank God this country is so great and strong that it can bear even that. Oh, irony, thy bitter sting. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wigfall's term as senator was marked with nonstop attacks on Republicans and abolitionists, but also on moderate Democrats like Stephen Douglas, who supported popular sovereignty in the territories. Wigfall and others like him supported not only the maintenance of slavery and the absolute tenets of states' rights, but the expansion of slavery into the territories, in defiance of the desires of the territory's inhabitants, but even into the free states. These radicals became known as fire eaters, and they pushed the southern states more and more towards secession. The arguments of Wigfall and the other fire eaters do have clear defenses of states' rights, but as we have discussed before, they almost never stray beyond, quote, the right to own slaves, and they're generally asymmetrical. They didn't want Northerners even to talk about abolition, but insisted that Southern whites must be guaranteed the right to own other people. They repeated the mantra of state sovereignty, but wanted slavery extended to the territories and protection for slavery extended and enforced in the free states. Many of Wigfall's Senate speeches contain these contradictory positions. Towards the end of his term, it was clear that Wigfall would support any pretext towards secession. Of course, the election of 1860, which brought Abraham Lincoln into the presidency, triggered just that. And very quickly, Wigfall's home state of South Carolina, as well as his adopted state of Texas, left the Union. Early on, after the Deep South had seceded, Wigfall advocated an attack on Fort Sumter and on Fort Pickens in Florida to prompt Virginia and the other upper southern states to join the Confederacy. He actually went down to Charleston, South Carolina in April 1861 as the siege of Fort Sumter commenced. According to famous Civil War diarist Mary Chestnut, quote, he was the only thoroughly happy person I see. He volunteered to serve as an aide to the commander, General P.G.T. Beauregard, during the bombardment of Fort Sumter. After the bombardment, and without authorization, he rode a skiff out to the island fort and demanded its surrender from Major Robert Anderson. Now, he actually managed to walk through the rubble into the fort to, to deliver his demand. The incident was widely reported in newspapers, furthering his celebrity. But the stories missed an important detail that Wigfall didn't talk about. He hadn't spoken to Beauregard in two days. When the authorized emissaries arrived at the fort, they were dismayed upon learning that Wigfall had actually granted terms to Anderson, which Beauregard had already rejected. Anderson himself was humiliated, and the surrender nearly fell through before they patched things up. Wigfall was formally expelled from the Senate on July 11, 1861, for support of the rebellion, five months after Texas seceded, four months after he actually entered the Confederate Congress, and two months after the fall of Fort Sumter. During all this time, Wigfall had continued to hold his seat in the U.S. Senate, exhorting the rightness of the Southern cause and berating his Northern colleagues, whether on the floor of the Senate or in the Capitol Hill saloons. This makes him one of the very few people to serve in two different Congresses simultaneously. During this time in Washington, he spied on federal preparations for the coming conflict, secured weapons for delivery to the South, and upon expulsion by his fellow senators, he went to Baltimore, Maryland, and recruited soldiers for the new Confederacy before finally traveling to the Confederate capital at Richmond, Virginia. Before he actually took up his seat, though, his newfound celebrity allowed Wigfall to secure an appointment to full colonel of the 1st Texas Infantry Regiment. He was rapidly promoted to Brigadier General of the Texas Brigade in the Confederate Army. He took up residence with his troops in a tavern at Dumfries, Virginia during the winter of 1861 to 1862, where he frequently called the men to arms at midnight to fend off some imagined federal attack. 
His nervousness was blamed, of course, on his fondness for whiskey and hard cider. He appeared visibly drunk on and off duty in the presence of his men on more than one occasion. He resigned his commission in February 1862 to take a seat in the Confederate Senate and was replaced by John Bell Hood. Now, early in the war, Wigfall was a close friend and supporter of Confederate President Jefferson Davis. As the war progressed, though, that position changed. Davis supported an increasingly strong national government for the Confederacy, while Wigfall, who was forever an advocate of states' rights, moved to block the creation of the Confederate Supreme Court, fearing that Davis's appointments would rule against the states. Wigfall also challenged Davis, who was a West Point graduate, a, a Mexican War commander, and the United States Secretary of War, on many of Davis's military-related policies. Wigfall called upon his vast experience of three full months of military service during the Seminole Wars to challenge Davis. Now, Wigfall wasn't always wrong. He accurately articulated both the understanding that the defense of the Mississippi River was vital to the South's survival, and also that the South would never really win the war without an offensive action in Northern Territory. In Northern Territory. He also was an early proponent of making Robert E. Lee commander of all the Confederate armies. Wigfall himself was a close friend of Confederate General Joseph E. Johnson, and he frequently proposed legislation on the general's behalf. Now, this did now this probably didn't help him very much with Davis, though. Davis despised the very capable Johnson, and the feeling was mutual. On the whole, however, Wigfall's career as a Confederate senator was not very successful. He had a reputation for breathing fire at Davis and did get some support from those who questioned the president's policies, but ultimately Davis was right that a centralized government was critical to winning the war. Wigfall's own biographer, Alvy King, argued that Wigfall displayed evidence of a dual personality, and probably today we'd consider him bipolar at best. He did little for Texas, often supporting bills that would go against Texas' interests. He mostly was known for his belligerence and, of course, drunkenness. Historian Bruce Catton wrote that one observer said Wigfall was, quote, half drunk all the time. At the end of the war, in January 1865, when the Confederate Congress was debating arming slaves to fight for the South, Wigfall stated his reasons for having supported the Confederacy in the first place. He said, quote, I wish to live in no country where the man who blacks my boots or curries my horse is my equal. What a stand-up guy. Wow. Wow. At the end of the war, when the cause in Virginia was lost, Wigfall shaved off his beard and ran to Texas, leaving his family behind. He returned to Texas in the company of Texas troops with a forged parole. When Wigfall reached Texas, he learned that General Kirby Smith had surrendered, so he fled to London. His family joined him in 1866 along with other disgraced Confederates. His life's dream had been an independent southern nation, and it had collapsed around him. He got in some local trouble by supporting efforts to foment oh he got in some local trouble in England by supporting efforts to rouse up some trouble between Britain and the US over the Canadian border, but in the end that came to nothing. Wigfall mostly drank and borrowed money to invest in shady schemes, such as a mine in Colorado, and for the most part he and his family lived in abject poverty. In 1872, when Wigfall was finally sure that he wouldn't be tried for treason, he returned to the U.S. with his family. They moved first to Baltimore and then finally returned to Texas, settling in Galveston in 1874. Uh, his investments in various business ventures, on borrowed money naturally, all failed. And after a month of 
being in Texas, he died. He was 58, and his death is generally listed as apoplexy, which today is what we'd call a stroke. Uh, this condition was very undoubtedly abetted by decades of drinking and the uncontrollable rage that he seemed to contain in himself. He was buried in Galveston's Episcopal Cemetery. Uh, today, you can go see his uh, grave. Now, his daughter, Louise, has an interesting story. She wrote, uh, she published her diary of her time in Richmond as the daughter of a Confederate senator in 1905, and it's considered an important historical document today. But mostly we don't remember Louis T. Wigfall, uh, other than uh, occasional Civil War history books. Well, see, Sean told me, he said, we're going to do a story about one of the fire eaters. And I said, you mean the bad guys from Harry Potter? <laughs> And he said, no, no, those are the Death Eaters. It's Fire Eaters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, this guy, that's, the, I mean, that's all you can say. This guy right here, Mr. Life of the Party. Yeah. Now, now he did have a fine beard. I'll give him that. A very fine beard. And he shaved who it off. Did, who yeah. didn't have a fine beard in 1847? <laughs> Civil War beards is uh, yeah. going to be a future I, subject of coming oh take gosh. it. I mean, you know, the things this guy says, I mean, just, yeah, he's a braggart and a blowhard. He blew through, like, you know, a fortune of money and just bad decisions and, and drinking drunkenness. I mean, he was half drunk all the time. Half drunk all the time. I, I'd, read, I, I'd read one story that said, that, like, he, you know, he was one of the most belligerent and stupid people ever sent to the Senate. But he actually was not unintelligent. I, I kind of, I actually kind of agree with the, the biographer who said that he had a split personality. I think I, he really does sound like a person who was bipolar, who, you know, was a manic type of person who could be very intelligent and smart in one minute and then well, choking you the next minute. Well, the only, the only medicine apparently they had, you know, was you could bite down on the stick or you can drink this rot gut whiskey. Or or hard cider. Or hard or hard cider, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He is you know, we talk about all these guys who went to Texas to reinvent themselves, you know. Yeah. Even even people that didn't have sterling reputations, like Jim Bowie. I mean, Jim Bowie was a Lance Wendler and had killed several people, but you know, he went to Texas to reinvent himself. Uh, Sam Houston, you know, in, in disgrace, went to Texas to reinvent himself. All these people, uh, uh, Travis, you know, fleeing debts. You know, th there's there's elements of these stories in Wigfall's story of th that that is common with a lot of these other people. But he didn't really reinvent himself. He just sort of picked him up, picked himself up, went to Texas, and then just kind of kept going from where he'd been before. Um, and. And and it's not an attractive person. It's you know we laugh, but it's a, this is a this is a repellent person in a lot of ways to today's sensibilities. I can guarantee that. Well, I remember reading a story by Ben Franklin, and he talked about you know when I was a young man, I learned to work hard, and I learned that if instead of drinking beer all day while working, if I just drank water, I felt refreshed and could work throughout the day with nary a problem. Yeah. And my work would my work would be excellent. And it was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't drink, sit at your desk and drink all day and and you know, or or work in a factory and just drink beers on the factory floor. Like there are things people go, Yeah, oh, the good old days. That ain't the good old days. Yeah. Walking around <laughs> Who's that drunk guy? Oh, 
that's the general who's going to send us into battle to get shot. <laughs> I, I do yeah. like that he like like he fought a phantom army um, while he was like intoxicated in bed and would yeah. muster the army out. Well, I I like the image of him standing up in the in the in the halls of the Confederate Congress and railing at Jefferson Davis, saying that he's incompetent and doesn't know anything about battle and war. And and my experiences, or you know, were you know, my experience tells me this. And like you look at his experience, and you you know, he spent he spent a few months, he spent a winter. Uh, leading some men in the in a camp and going up against phantom Union armies, and before that, his only military experience was basically the Second Seminole War, which consisted of going into the Florida swamps and burning Indian villages. That's that's really what he did for three months when he was twenty something years old. I mean, like, listen, I mean, the guy, he was hardline beyond hardliner. Yeah, and yeah. and I mean, he like railed against Stephen Douglas. It was like really. Yeah. Really? That's the guy you're going to go? Okay. okay. All right. Some pro tips from Come and Take It. One, you know, look, New Year's Eve is around the corner. Christmas is here. It's okay to have a little eggnog. Just not at 7 in the morning on the way to work. Uh, I think that's a lesson I can take from this one. Also, too, uh, this guy's just <laughs> this guy's a bipolar jerk, so just steer clear of him. Yeah. Yeah. Not... Uh... Not one of our uh, Texas heroes. No, no, I, and that's the thing is that we've had we've had some bad politicians. We're going to talk about we're going to have future episodes on some of the other bad politicians. We're going to talk about Mon Pa Ferguson, uh, and we'll talk about a few other people um, who were not the the, mm. the greatest of examples of Texas politics. Uh, yeah, Texas politics is unique in and of itself, but and and this is definitely an example of a man who came to Texas to reinvent himself and pretty much just did the exact same thing. Yeah. Well, exactly. I, I think we can all agree that his biggest mistake was uh, aligning himself with he who must not be named and uh, attacking Hogwarts. <laughs> Total rubbish. Uh, I, Terrible I, mistake. I think his biggest mistake was <laughs> I mean the, the the Houston comment was a pretty pretty good burn. <laughs> oh, <my> God. <laughs> pretty These pretty guys. pretty good. Yeah, coming from Houston, who knew his drink? Yeah. Yes. From one, <laughs> from one soppy alcoholic to another. Hammond is is a not a good person at all. I mean, he is the person who coined the phrase "cotton is king." Um, he said that not only was slavery not a sin, it was biblically ordained by Christ, and uh, he molested his nieces. Those are some oh. of the things that he did. So, oh, there you go. Well, I'm not going to give the slow root. I'm not giving the slow Rudy <laughs> clap to that guy. Yeah, and this is and so that this is a guy that yeah this is a guy that 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 Wigfall opposed politically, but was personal friends with him. Oh boy! So it didn't have a problem oh. with him socially. <laughs> oh jeez! That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast. Or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. And thanks to all the folks who've taken time out to send us notes. We appreciate it, and uh, we, we thank you for the kind words. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean, two ends. And I'm Scotticus. You love this show. You love Texas. And hey, 2016 is winding down. So... 
at your Christmas party, at that New Year's Eve celebration. Tell your friends about this great podcast about Texas history and go to iTunes and leave a review because that helps us out to find listeners just like you. And be a true fan. Support the show financially. Go to patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs>